Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. So it's episode 26, Dave. Six months of doing this. Can you believe it? No, it's great. We're going to do 85 of these, correct? We have... We have to do at least as many of these shows as uh, essays on the Federalist Papers, or it's or it's a fail. So yeah, but oh. uh, and ended right well. Uh, six six month point is right uh, right after an election, so it's good. Hopefully, our audience won't drop off completely now that there'll be no politics to talk about. What what is left? I know the election's over. I mean, we could start gearing up for 2024. I think we've got some people that are probably ready for that, but I wouldn't mind a little bit of a break. Transition talk could be could be good stuff. Go down through all the would be cabinet appointees. I, I can't wait to get to it. Still plenty. There's always plenty of things to talk about in politics. Correct. There is always plenty to talk about. Yeah. Speaking of which, well, let's let's talk about where things stand with the election. So almost just as we were beginning to record, we had the final calls for the states of North Carolina and Georgia, and so what that means is now at least according to the count at present, it's 306 electoral college votes for Joe Biden and 232 for Donald Trump. Of course, the key number 270 was reached by Biden, at least according to the projectors on Saturday morning. And so shortly after that, after Pennsylvania was called in his favor, he gave a speech claiming victory. I want to talk through a little bit of what he had to say and then the Trump response and some of the events of the last week as people have tried to sort through various claims about election integrity and and the transition and just kind of where we are on each of these issues. So Biden began his speech, my fellow Americans, the people of this nation have spoken. They have delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. And he goes on to cite the number of popular votes which he had, which is a record now. It's up to something like 77 million. He's got about a 5 million vote margin over President Trump, it, it rings a little bit like the 2016 victory speech of, of President Trump, where he's talking about this historic landslide victory. Let's just say it was close. Can we just both agree <laughs> about 75,000 votes in each election would have flipped it the other way. So you, you won, you know, and it looks pretty good in the electoral college numbers, but it's not a huge win. And let's, let's not pretend otherwise. Now he goes on, and he addressed directly those that voted for President Trump. He says, I understand your disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple of elections myself, but now let's give each other a chance. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, to lower the temperature, to see each other again, to listen to each other again, to make progress. We must stop treating our opponents as our enemy. We are not enemies. We are Americans. And then he cites Ecclesiastes 3, the Bible tells us, that to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. Now, from there, he transitioned to a summary of what he took to be the mandate. What was it that he ran on, and what was it that he was commissioned to do by the American people? So he says, now the campaign is over, what is the people's will? What is our mandate? I believe it is this. Americans have called on us to marshal the forces of decency and the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time. The battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and to root out systemic racism in this country, the battle to save the climate, the battle to restore decency, defend democracy, and give everybody in this country a fair shot. And he calls for bipartisanship, says that basically it's a choice for Democrats and Republicans not to work together. And if they can choose not to cooperate, they can choose to cooperate. And so he calls on the Congress, Democrats and Republicans to make that choice. And then he concludes, he quotes a, a hymn and then reflects upon that hymn, which that hymn is drawing from the imagery of, of Isaiah chapter 40. He says, now together on eagle's wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do. With full hearts and steady hands, with faith in America and in each other, with a love of country and a thirst for justice, let us be the nation that we know we can be. A nation united, a nation strengthened, a nation healed, the United States of America. What, what do you think of this message of healing, Dave, as we transition from election season into presumably 
a Biden presidency. Well, the speech as a whole reminds me a lot of a similar uh, victory speech that President Obama gave, what, 12 years ago uh, in winning the 2008 election. It has a lot of the same um, uh, words and ideas, uh, the idea that we can transcend our differences and, and so on, uh, and that we ought to be a nation united, uh, strengthened, and healed. The challenge for me is that I don't believe as a country between the years 2008 and 2016, we became more united, more strengthened, and more healed, but uh, further divided, uh, further weakened uh, with, um, with more wounds um, on either side. So it'll be interesting to see uh, as we move forward here, just what uh, tangible steps does a President Biden take to unite, strengthen, and heal the country. If it's all speech, uh, reference to hymns and so on, and it has no real tangible effect upon the body politic, then we'll further um, be within a country that is divided uh, and that uh, faces something that none of us want, which is you know, the, the prospect of uh, uh, continued uh, disharmony, uh, disunity, et cetera. Yeah, one of the things that I really would like to see much more of as we have these attempts to promote peace, to call for ends of division, would be calling out people on your own side who are agents of division or, or examples of division on your own side. Because it just seems it's too easy to call for healing. And then as you're doing that, talk about restoring decency and defending democracy giving everybody a fair shot. Obviously the implication is that for the last four years, you haven't had decency or democracy or a fair shot. So, you know, who has to change? Well, it's you losers. Right? It's the people that, that voted for president Trump. And if that's the way you frame it, even if you're the languages of healing, if you're the, if you're the physician, right. And not ever the one who actually causes the wound and in, in all the stories that you tell, you're, you're the one that fixes the wounds, never creating the wounds then you're probably not dealing with political reality. And it's unlikely that anything's really going to happen productively here. Yeah, just to add, add to that, to say that you have a record number of votes for you is, is a great thing. But to recognize that you had a record number of votes against you as well, that there were almost 72 million Americans who did not vote for me and uh, they had a good reason you know, for not voting for me. The person they voted for thought X, Y, and Z. And to some degree, I can give that person credit uh, for reemphasizing those things. So uh, mentioning the, the what is better in, in your opponent or what, what might be imperfect, but is on the way to what is good is a way to heal or to unite. And there's none of that in the speech. Yeah. And so that's some of what we would think about the best examples of this political magnanimity in our history. I think back to the speech that James Madison gave advocating a Bill of Rights after a very, very divisive campaign over ratification of the Constitution. And uh, called all kinds of nasty names. If you were in favor of the Constitution, you were a monarchist, you were an aristocrat, you were somebody who was against the people. And rather than focusing on that, he says, look, these people love liberty. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the thing that, that, that's you know, the most noble element of, of who they are and sure, they may have said some, some mean things, some things that were untrue, but rather than focusing on that, let's, let's talk about the, the things that they, that they care for that are, that are worth affirming. And, and so you know, if you want to begin to, to heal, you're going to have to be able to recognize the decency of the masses of people out there that have come to different conclusions on major policy questions from you. Yeah, and that hasn't happened yet. And until that happens, really happens and, and is, is shown in, in the way that, you know, one governs, then I think there'll still be those divisions there. We've said time and time again that um, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle, but if it's treated as such, even by uh, Victor, uh, who wants to appear magnanimous, uh, it, it'll still be the case. Yeah, so then President Trump, shortly after the Biden speech, released a statement on Saturday and short two-paragraph, three-paragraph statement, but the essence of it says, Joe Biden has not been certified as the winner of any states, let alone any of the highly contested states headed for mandatory recounts or states where our campaign is valid and legitimate legal challenges that could determine the ultimate victor. Then skipping down a 
couple lines. Beginning Monday, our campaign will start prosecuting our case in court to ensure election laws are fully upheld and the rightful winner is seated. Now, that's, of course, last Saturday, so it's been almost a week's time in the, since then, and we've got a number of those, those lawsuits proceeding and lots of tweets from the president. Uh, there was a, a number of reporters, different reporters yesterday reporting uh, from various conversations around the Trump administration that this was not really sincere on the part of President Trump, that, that he knows that he's lost and that he's trying to put up a fight on behalf of those that voted for him. He thinks they deserve that fight. Maybe they want that fight. Maybe there's some political value for him down the road in making that fight, but that he's not really, really sincere. Now, if this is all theater, well, we have, uh, we can ask ourselves is, are we watching a, a comedy or a tragedy? We've got you know, these, these tweets, again, alleging millions of votes that should be in play based on corruption charges and all the rest. But when you look at the legal claims and the press statements, it's, it's largely more pedestrian. The president made a statement to the press yesterday talking about different states, where Wisconsin and Arizona, relatively small margins. He believed if you had a, a full recount that those would turn to his side. Georgia, of course, you have a hand recount underway. And again, he believed that that would reveal him to be the true winner. Then he comes to Michigan and Pennsylvania. And there, the margins are more substantial. It's about 60,000 votes in Pennsylvania. The latest numbers, about 160,000 votes in Michigan. And, and the big complaints there are that there were lots of votes that were counted while, according to the president, Republicans either weren't able to watch or weren't close enough to really watch whether they were you know, in the building, but not close enough to actually observe the vote counting process. And there's an effort underway led by Rudy Giuliani in Pennsylvania and some individual voters in Michigan to have all those votes thrown out. So you're talking about a couple of million votes in Michigan. You're talking about in the hundreds of thousands of votes in Pennsylvania on the grounds that they weren't counted with proper supervision. That, that's the kind of long shot lawsuit that seems unlikely to land. Meanwhile, some of the things that are maybe documentable irregularities, really interesting study by Leon Wolf over at The Blaze went through 234 pages of affidavits concerning a federal lawsuit filed in Michigan and all the particular allegations and, and some of them you know, concerned harassment of people that were poll watchers and things of the sort but looked specifically at the ones that involved allegations of fraud. And he outlines them all. You can read every single one of them. You can read the affidavits if you want, but he outlines all of them and summarizes basically the claim that's embedded in them. And his conclusion is you're talking about under a thousand votes. So if, if all these things were true, then you're still talking about under a thousand votes. If you're talking about actual possible cases of fraud in a state like Michigan, maybe there's a thousand votes that are in play if you're talking about questions of votes being counted without proper supervision, now, now you're talking about the millions of votes, but you can't possibly imagine that those would just, votes would just be thrown out and, and not recounted or anything of that sort. That can't possibly be a reasonable outcome to just say, well, those, those votes based on the process by which they were counted can't be included in the final tally for a state. You could see how someone might maybe in, in the extreme order a recount of all the ballots from those locations, but you can't imagine that they would just be thrown out and that would just be removed from the final total in Pennsylvania or in Michigan. Here's an opportunity, going back to something we said earlier, that if President-elect Joe Biden is serious about uniting the country, why wouldn't he uh, be willing to um, suggest that uh, a recount in those states occur, uh, that we do our best to, uh, to find out, maybe in those states that are 25,000 or less votes, exactly what the margin was. Uh, and you know, that would satisfy, I think, a lot of people uh, on the center right who see these voting irregularities that, okay, well, he's willing to listen to us and, and make sure there's a fair accounting of what happened on November 3rd. Uh, and I think it would you know, put um, President Trump in a, in a corner as well to say, okay, well, you know, once this is done and that recount happens in those three or four states, 
if I come out the loser, I come out the loser, uh, but we're not going to go through lawsuits for the next two months or so. And, and an act, if it is an act, um, uh, just to kind of further divide the country. So you know, right. Joe Biden has a great opportunity here to do that. I, I doubt he will. Uh, and, and hence, uh, you know, probably more of the name calling lawsuits, et cetera, will go on, but, but little to actually heal the divide. Yeah, it'd be good to lay out an end game here. And this seems like a very plausible one. In Georgia, you have Republican Secretary of State who has ordered a hand recount. And this is what he says. It says, with the margin being so close, it will require a full by hand recount in each county. This will help build confidence. It will be an audit, a recount, and a recanvas all at once. It will be a heavy lift, but we will work with the counties to get this done in time for our state certification, which uh, is deadline is November 20th. So that's, that's obviously rapidly approaching. But you see the, the whole impetus behind it is to build confidence. And just as you're saying, Dave, if you did the same thing, certainly in Arizona and Wisconsin, the two other states where you've got a margin of 20,000 votes or less, well, then you'd have a good argument to say, well, look, you know, we, we've looked at this. Whatever irregularities there were and processes of counting or things of this sort, this did not affect the final outcome in these states. Now, Pennsylvania, you know, you've got a, a broader argument, further argument beyond the question of supervision. There was an article written by Paul Kengore at the American Spectator, who's a professor of politics at, at Grove City and author of a number of very widely highly regarded books on faith and the presidency and things of this sort. And he argued statistically that it seemed implausible that Trump lost the election by uh, less than a point. So if you looked at the Real Clear Politics average before the election of national polls, it projected a seven point win for Biden. Right now, it looks like 3.4 points. So there's a difference of 3.6 points. And there was a, a margin for Biden of 1.3 points in Pennsylvania, and it's 0.9 points. So the argument basically was that President Trump overperformed the national polls by about three and a half points. Why wouldn't he do likewise in Pennsylvania? Well, if you look more closely at it, if you look at there's there's only actually five pollsters who polled both nationally and Pennsylvania, and if you just compare those those five pollsters, because we've, as we saw last week, pollsters mattered in this. We can't just take the average of all the polls and say, well, these are all equally valid, all equally indicative or predictive of the result. Some pollsters is much, much better. And more of the good pollsters polled Pennsylvania than did the national election. So we have to compare apples with apples here. And if we do that, we find that actually President Trump overperformed the polls in Pennsylvania in these five pollsters results by over four points and their corresponding national polls by only 2.6 points. So there doesn't seem to be anything surprising there that you would say, wait a second, this is kind of a head scratching result that, that makes me want to dive more deeply into the question of whether there was some massive fraud, right? that, that this, you know, there's some, there's some, some gap numerically that's not accounted for. The polls were wrong everywhere, and these pollsters in general were, were pretty wrong everywhere. This includes the worst offender, Quinnipiac, among others. But the polls in Pennsylvania suggest about a five-point victory for Biden, and the fact that President Trump was able to make it less than one point um, seems in line with his overall overperformance of the polls around the country. So what do we make of all this? How do we, how do we tie all this together as we recognize that there's many people out there who are concerned about the integrity of the election and there's wild accusations, there's wild claims, and then there's more responsible ones. You know, this is the difference between Twitter and lawsuits, right? When you have a lawsuit, you have to have actually affidavits. People have to swear things with legal penalties in the balance. And so you find, not surprisingly, that what people will say on Twitter and what they'll actually say in an affidavit, sworn affidavit, are often two different things. And so we've got a, a pretty big gap between the Twitter prosecution of the case against the integrity of the election and the actual courtroom prosecution of the case against the integrity of the election. I think, I think uh, Jim Garrity at National Review did a good job of kind of summing all this up. This is, this is what he said in his morning jolt newsletter yesterday. Any fair reading of the facts would conclude that the contention voter fraud doesn't exist is simply not accurate. 
And we had that over and over again. Over the course of the summer, every time President Trump warned about the possibility of voter fraud, almost every article you would read said, well, of course, there's no proof that that's ever happened. And we did a whole show on this. Go listen to it if you want more of the details. But there's plenty of proof that voter fraud has and does occur. But then Garrity continues. But any fair reading of the facts would also conclude that the cases that have been uncovered and proven in a court of law involve small amounts of votes. Two votes here, a handful of votes there, a couple dozen in the Philadelphia case. No investigator has ever uncovered a plot that falsified thousands or tens of thousands of ballots. No investigator has ever uncovered a conspiracy of poll workers to include piles upon piles of fraudulent ballots. And this is where Machiavelli comes in from last week, our discussion of conspiracies. Right? What's, what's Machiavelli think, Dave, of the possibility of a conspiracy involving hundreds or thousands of people? Not going to happen. Not going to happen, right? So somebody's going to slip up. We're, we're not that clever. This is one of the, the great faults of the conspiracy theorists is that they think we're all too clever and that no one ever accidentally says something that they shouldn't say or drops a slip of paper that they shouldn't have dropped or you know, these mass conspiracies on these kind of scales, they, they, always, they always reveal themselves. And of course, at a much smaller scale, they, they reveal themselves because people like to brag. People like to talk. People accidentally talk. People mess up. People aren't that smart and they're not that careful at covering their tracks. Yeah. I mean, you asked the question, where do we go from here? And I, and I think that uh, what you're what you're pointing out is that we need to be clear-eyed, we need to be realistic, uh, we need to kind of put the election uh, within perspective. You know, is it the election to end all elections? Uh, I think we've asked that question in multiple, on multiple shows and, and said no, that there'll be another election. Uh, so, you know, what do, what do you do now if you're President Trump? Now, well, you certainly have um, the applause and, and, and love of a great many Americans, uh, you have worked on a variety of different fronts uh, to uh, put the country on a new course. Uh, the fact that you lost uh, an election, uh, perhaps, uh, does not mean that you cannot continue uh, to uh, pursue uh, that course. Uh, you could do so uh, either by going down to Georgia now and, and trying to uh, make sure that those special elections are won. Uh, you can do that by you know putting together um, you know, the, the makings of a campaign uh, for 2024 and uh, continuing to bang the drums that you've you know, banged over the last four or five years that have given inspiration to a great amount uh, of, uh, of Americans. Uh, there's always another battle uh, to, um, to try to win um, and you know, moving forward with, with grace and dignity would probably make it more likely that you would win those battles in the future. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the striking things that came out in another poll this week which I know, caveat on all the polls, <laughs> but, but another poll that came out this week, look, the American people are moving on from this. So there was a, a poll that put up by Reuters that 79% of Americans think Biden won, 13% say it's not decided, 3% say Trump, and 5% don't know. So even among Republicans, a majority, as they looked at it, were saying that, that Joe Biden had won the election. And I think if you're just thinking about President Trump's own self-interest here, you know, you're going to have to at some point give up and just recognize that people are moving forward. You know, the Biden transition is happening, whether you release the funds or not. He's, he's going to be able to manage that from, from Wilmington if need be. Uh, you don't have to be gentlemanly about it, but the transition is still going to happen. And world leaders have already made the move. They're calling him. They're congratulating him. This is one of those things. You don't want to be the last one to know. You don't want to be the last one to know you've lost or the last one to acknowledge that you've lost. So I think we're at that point where they've, they've made their argument in the court of public opinion. They've had their chance to present whatever evidence they have in the courts. They haven't done very well in the courts, except in cases that deal with a small number of votes and are much more strictly based upon the law and the constitution rather than these more wild theories. It, it's time to, to wrap it up. And it's also time by the way, for the press and others to stop with all the wild talk of coups on the other side. This is not a coup. The fact that the president has taken 10 days to acknowledge a defeat that was just finalized actually an hour ago based upon the Electoral College projections. Well, you know, it might have been better had he behaved better. We could say that about four years plus of President Trump's behavior. But to talk about coups and to sort of imitate the 
the methods of Trump and responding to Trump has, has been, I think, the, the greatest weakness of the press during this period is that it's, it's decided to fight fire with fire and only made things worse while it's burned its own credibility. So let's try to get a little more perspective on this as we try to, with some distance now from the election and looking forward, think about the future of the republic. That's always going to be our orientation here. What do you have for us in the required reading this week, Dave? Well, one of the things that we can do in life is we can look at something that's more immediate to us and, and see it as a tragic, uh, as the end-all, be-all. Uh, but oftentimes, right, to gain uh, proper perspective is to uh, draw away from the immediate and, and perhaps see something else that is going on. So the required reading that I have uh, for today include uh, two more recent essays, uh, one by the French political philosopher Pierre Manent, titled The Tragedy uh, of the Republic, and an essay by uh, Hillsdale historian uh, Bradley Berzer uh, on the Republic as well. And then kind of sandwiched between uh, those two great essays uh, are some selections from uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America on uh, individualism, on despotism, and on elections. So uh, let, let's set it up by, by turning to Manent uh, first. Um, uh, Manent, uh, who's French, um, argues that the French have a, a quote, furor for republicanism and citizenship, uh, but uh, are really lacking kind of an understanding of what a republic is and, and what collective action amounts to. Um, to. To see what republicanism is in thought and action is really a key to, to really practice republicanism well, to really have a, a healthy uh, republic. And one of the things he says at the beginning of his essay is that part of the problem living within a contemporary modern context is that uh, we live in a, a world where republicanism uh, has come uh, to be um, moved towards a, a representative um, capacity that uh, we talk about uh, modern republicanism uh, as, as a matter of uh, choosing or selecting a representative uh, to stand uh, for our interests. We, we want to be well represented, hence elections, et cetera. But he argues that uh, the basic basis uh, of political life does not lie in the mechanism of representation. You might add that it does not lie in the mechanism of election. Uh, to be well represented does not necessarily mean that you are well governed. And uh, a true Republican ought to ask, well, what good governance is? Now, what does it mean to be uh, uh, well governed? What does it mean to um, pursue the, the government that is good for all? Uh, and that that is defined within the Republican form of government, he says, as the pursuit of the general interest. So a Republican government is good if the general interest or common good is being pursued. Uh, if it's not, if it's a matter of particular interest, then you're living uh, within an unhealthy republic. So next question for a minute. How can you live within a republic in which there is a pursuit of the general interest? And he argues that the only way to do this is to live in a republic uh, where you have good leaders and good citizens. And to try to find where good leaders and good citizens come from, uh, he turns to Shakespeare's portrait of republics in his Roman histories. He says, we want and should want as much as possible to have leaders who are ambitious and aspire to great acts, and we should want to have citizens who recognize those great acts for what they are. The disconnect is when you have leaders who aspire to greatness but aren't willing uh, to defer uh, to uh, the applause uh, of the multitude, or when you have great leaders who simply want the applause of the multitude uh, to uh, be in place without actually performing a great act. The story of Rome uh, through eyes of Shakespeare, Manent argues, is a story that, that shows us that Republicanism is a hard uh, type of government to, to make right. Now, what's this mean for us in the year 2020, and what's it mean for the American Republic? Well, he gets to that near the, the end of his piece and, and says that membership in the Republic implies an enlargement that links the individual to the common. And in Republican form, there's an unequal enlargement of souls that nourishes and some legitimate and dangerous pride. 
the great citizen is not only greater or smaller than another great citizen, he is also greater than himself, for he has another body and another soul, you know, that of the republic itself. Now, if you were to translate that into uh, modern American politics, do we see in our leaders a desire uh, to see something greater than themselves, uh, be the bond uh, of of the Republic itself. And, and, and do we see in the souls of the citizen uh, something like that? You know, is, is the regime that which holds together right action and right applause uh, for that action? And I think that's kind of where there's a great challenge in the United States of America in the year 2020, because I think that there is disagreement as to what the regime means, uh, a disagreement as to what uh, good action uh, that produces uh, the general interest or the general good uh, would look like. And, and until we get back to that idea that there can be a general interest or common good uh, that um, is, is moving us forward, even though we have different opinions on how to get there, it's going to be difficult you know, for our leaders to be uh, considered as great uh, or for our citizens to have uh, that proper embrace uh, of, of the regime that will make our republic function well. Yeah, I think that you're, you're pointing to a, a, a big challenge there. And what would, it, what would it take for Americans to recognize in the person of the president or in the president's vision? Yeah, I've got some stake in that. I'm part of that. We, we can imagine that for a certain group of voters or citizens who certainly right after an election say, yeah, this is the agenda and let's go do it. And you have some energy around that, at least for a short period of time until the challenges of life kind of get in the way, but to have the whole nation united. And part of the difficulty is, you know, this is the kind of thing that you only usually have at times of great crisis. You know, when Madison talks about what would it take to get rid of parties? And his answer is, well, if we were really in danger, (laughs) we might get rid of parties. Okay, is that what we want? To be in great danger so that our survival is on the line and so we all rally around the president, rally around some military action or what have you. That, 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 that's probably not the solution that we're looking for. So I think that the trick is thinking about what are the contours of a common good that we could all embrace without giving up our particular understanding of the best means of achieving it. And you know, is, is there something more to it than just the kind of things that were usually pointed to, like general prosperity. If, if only the GDP were to keep going up and unemployment down and inflation stays about where it should be, you know, those kind of numbers that we breathlessly wait for every month. Is, is that it? Is, is that the thing that we all are going to agree is really important? And then we'll just divide over how best to achieve that result? Or is there something more fundamental? Is there anything immaterial that we could point to. You know, think about the, the idea of, of the ancient republic certainly pointed to a non-material good at the heart of that common good. And I just wonder, do we have any of that left where we could have legitimate unity that doesn't just sort of paper over the differences that remain, but allows us to say, yeah, this is what we are all trying to achieve together and have it not be something that's that's basically just, you know, six months longer life and a better 401k. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what would that look like? Uh, what would that common good look like? I certainly think it would have something to do with, with peace. It would have something to do with civility. It would have something to do with uh, joy in, in living uh, with one another. Uh, it'd have something to do with um, a, a public spiritedness that you know, plays itself out in the smallest type of act and being a little league coach uh, or in helping your neighbor. Um, those things don't, won't make headlines, but they certainly could be things. Uh, they, they are things that, that, that we like and enjoy and, and should seek after. Um, but uh, it just seems the more that we've grown as a republic, uh, perhaps the less likely it is that we are to, to seek um, that type or form of, of common good. It's not impossible, but it, it's, it's made more difficult, which leads me to uh, the, the second and third um, required readings, uh, really excerpts that I just want to reference from Tocqueville that I say are sandwiched in between these two essays. 
the first excerpt is from a volume two, part two, chapter two of Democracy in America titled uh, Of Individualism in Democratic Countries. Uh, and the second excerpt is uh, also from volume two, but uh, part four, chapter six, what type of despotism democratic nations have to fear. Uh, we've referenced uh, that, that chapter before in Democracy in America, but how are these two excerpts connected? Well, in the, in the first excerpt, the first discussion on individualism in democratic countries, Tocqueville introduces individualism as what he calls a novel expression to which a novel idea has given birth. He says, our fathers were only acquainted with egotism. Uh, egotism is a passionate and exaggerated love of self, which leads a man to connect everything with his own person and to prefer himself to everything in the world. Individualism, on the other hand, is a mature and calm feeling, which disposes each member of the community to sever himself from the mass of his fellow creatures and to draw apart with his family and his friends, so that after he has thus formed a little circle of his own, he willingly leaves society at large to itself. So here Tocqueville is suggesting that uh, even within the American Republic, uh, democracy might have the effect of, of severing uh, individuals from one another as they closed in in little circles of, of their own, uh, leaving kind of the common good of society at large to itself. And I think when we read those lines, okay, we can, we can see a little bit of that in our own individual existences. We can see that, you know, in many ways we've become individualistic and how hard is it to be a good citizen when one's main orientation is individualism. That's, a, I think, a challenge that uh, Tocqueville's thought poses to us. Yeah, and the only real break from that, which I think is where you're going with this, is when we have this national election, really every four years, because even the midterm election, there's just not that much, much engagement over. So we have this moment, this, this civic moment, where we vote and you know, for some period before that vote and some brief period after that vote, we're all heightened in, in our engagement in public life. And then we just retreat again. And we go back to that individualistic kind of life and then you know, start gearing up. Now, some of us are, are professionals at this. And so we never, we never really back off from it. But, but most people, that's not the way it works, right? The, the act of voting is the, is the one principal place where you have this civic engagement. Is there anything beyond just that activity of almost you know, sort of rooting for a side, right? Picking a side and then, and then casting your vote on behalf. Is there, is there more to a public life than that, that we can, that we can cultivate? Um, and, you know, for de Tocqueville, that often involves these kind of local associations. You mentioned Little League, the church potluck, the, the block party, getting involved in town government or town meetings or those kind of things. But those, those things are, are not normal anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, this kind of individualism where we just, you know, leaving aside, obviously the challenges of COVID at the moment, but, but this isn't about the last nine months. There's some more fundamental shifts that have taken place where we have less of those kind of informal connections that aren't, aren't political in the most narrow sense, but, but have a political quality to them and a Republican quality as we build relationships with our neighbors. Yeah. So just to quickly reference the second excerpt on uh, democratic despotism, or he says that it's, it is indeed difficult to conceive how men who have entirely given up the habit of self-government, and you could also hear say the habit of being Republican citizens should succeed in making a proper choice of those by whom they are to be governed. So if, if we don't have the habits of the heart of a Republican citizen, that you know, little league type who kind of sees the common good before you and, and just your everyday experience uh, in your workplace, uh, in your community, et cetera, will you be able to make the right choice and think about your choice uh, in, in choosing a president or a congressman in similar terms? Um, and you know, here the danger is, well, you, you might not be able to, and, and what you end up doing as a spectator of the national blood sport, which is American politics, is you don't form a little circle of your own, but you form a larger circle of your own uh, to which you gravitate and, and you see everything 
uh, as a zero-sum game as to whether or not your side wins or the other side wins, uh, forgetting uh, those important uh, little things that you might do uh, as a citizen in between elections uh, to uh, help us uh, more fully realize uh, what it would mean to live out American Republican existence. And where people aren't abstractions because they're actually flesh and blood neighbors that you like, you know, that you get along with, that you've enjoyed the shared experience with. You know, on, on Twitter, everybody's a, an idea. Everybody's a projection of good or evil. But when you're actually talking over the fence to your neighbor, you're just another person who's got their various challenges and personality ticks. And, you know, there's, there's some real life flesh and blood there that you're interacting with that, that gives you a way of, of getting past the most deep divisions that otherwise might divide us over, over political ideologies. So let's end on a, on a high note. Uh, the uh, Menent essay was titled The Tragedy uh, of the Republic. Uh, Bradley Berger's essay um, from the Act and Power blog is America Remains. Uh, and um, why, uh, why might America remain and, and why might uh, the Republic uh, and proper leadership and, and citizenship uh, be able to be retained even through every challenge that we face? So here in Berger's essay, he, he says that, you know, a lot of um, assessment of republics deals or assessment of just not just republics, but any form of government uh, deal with uh, the cyclical rise and fall uh, of regimes that uh, uh, even the greatest uh, of republics uh, faces a moral decline and then a disintegration and, and finally a collapse. Uh, here Berger says of, of Livy, Livy saw this in, in the Roman Republic when wealth and self-indulgence led to sensual excess, uh, that uh, the individual and collective uh, falls apart uh, as we uh, grow uh, closer and closer to, uh, to our desire to uh, satisfy uh, our self-interest. And he even says that uh, at the end of the 18th, early 19th century, uh, many an American founder uh, also had a pessimistic notion of where the Republic was going, uh, believing that uh, likewise, the sudden accumulation of wealth and fortune uh, would lead to, um, as Berger calls, a loss uh, of a sense of moral obligation between individuals in the Republic. And um, this is all wrapped up uh, nicely, uh, Berger says in, in that um, set of portraits, uh, if you've never seen them before, please do, that Thomas Cole, The Course of Empire, that are we just kind of set on the course of a cyclical uh, movement uh, towards our disintegration. So, uh, 2020, uh, are we near the end uh, of that cycle? Are we about to die? Uh, certainly seems, he says, to be a time uh, of extreme confusion and a time where there's no contentment. Uh, he asked the question, is the Republic truly over? Uh, and then nicely, and I, I think effectively uh, references uh, Edmund Burke to say, no, it is not over. Uh, and here, let me read a couple lines from, from Berzer's essay, we are never uh, authorized to abandon our country to its fate or to act or advise as if it had no resources. Why? Because the heart of the citizen is a perennial spring of energy to the state. Uh, the public must never be regarded as incurable. And here, uh, uh, Berzer surmises the following. And this is really kind of something neat for us, a neat perspective to remember, right? That that we are all individual you know, human persons, not in the sense that Tocqueville is defining individualism, that we kind of shield ourselves off from others, but, but that we're individual human persons um, that are made in the image of an infinite creator, an infinite God, that each of us has a center of dignity and freedom. And he goes on to say that a new face, we are all a new face of God to the world. Each human person is thus a new hope, a new possibility, a renewal of love. So we ought not to fear the fall of the Republic or the fall of America if we can be this new face of God to the world, this new hope, this new possibility, this renewal of love. But to do so, we have to realize that we have a moral duty to perform. Uh, he says each of us must serve as a new, if yet finite, face of infinite wisdom. Uh, now, uh, that's little more than going to a poll and, and casting a vote, uh, uh, but those are things that we can do 
in every aspect of our experience, like I said before, in, in every event we do, uh, if we can think of ourselves as such, uh, then we ought not to um, be traumatized by uh, the fact that a fall is coming uh, or that uh, uh, the end is near, but that um, it will remain, uh, the common good as an idea will remain if we can be representatives of that uh, in our own individual lives. We don't have a right to despair. We have a, a moral responsibility to do what we can do in whatever circle of connections we have, whatever our sphere, our reach, uh, to, to care for the common things, right? Res publica, the common things. And to do that well, and whether others will do likewise is something that we can be interested in, concerned about, but can't ultimately be our responsibility, except insofar as we set the example for them to follow a path of of rightful care for for one's neighbor. So, yeah, I like I like that piece. That's a that's a good way to reframe us as we come out of this political season. And and you know, if you're disappointed by the results, well, what do you do next? Well, why don't you go care for your neighbor? Why don't yep. you why don't you find some some good thing you can do that will help somebody rather than focusing on on the latest outrage. Find some productive way to, to be a blessing to those near you. Yeah, and, and, and for those who aspire to be great, this will be my last required reading, understand what true greatness is in, in, um, in being an obedient servant um, to the common good, uh, to the Republic. And I think that um, uh, my daughter, would Eliza, would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Hamilton, the Broadway's uh, show, your obedient servant uh, and the lyrics of that um, where Burr is questioning um, Hamilton's support for Thomas Jefferson and uh, Hamilton uh, replies, Hey, I have not been shy. I'm just a guy in the public eye trying to do my best for a Republic. I don't want to fight, but I won't apologize for doing what's right. Certainly Hamilton's act uh, in preventing uh, Burr, uh, from ascending to the presidency is one of those types of acts uh, that um, kind of uh, speaks to a, a previous age, uh, kind of a, a Roman Republican act of a great individual that we rightly applause uh, as citizens. If we had leaders who were willing to do similar things in 2020, we'd be in good shape and we ought rightly to applause uh, such acts as Hamilton's. Very good. Well, we'll leave it there as we turn now to the grade book and Hard to believe. We just got through an incredible week of weather here in New York. It was like 70 degrees, sunny. All of a sudden we were thinking, now why do we take the air conditioners out? But it was just, just beautiful. But the last two days, fall has returned and it's in the 50s and 30s overnight and rainy and such. And so now we realize, yes, for real, Thanksgiving is rapidly approaching, less than two weeks away. And so we are thinking, well, it's, it's time really now to start planning your menu. And we know that with all the, the COVID restrictions, it's probably not going to be a traditional Thanksgiving in terms of who's around the table. But we're going to grade some of your options for menus as you think about what you want to do. So we'll start with the traditional, at least in the north, maybe New England first and foremost. Turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing. Throw a few more sides on the table. Of course, you got to fill it out. Dave, what grade would you give to the classic turkey mashed potatoes stuffing Thanksgiving dinner? Not a fan of turkey, just you know, on its own. I'm more of a chicken than turkey guy, but um, okay. just don't like that turkey flavor. But it's you know, the smell is great. I mean, I, I think the whole thing together, A minus. If I like turkey more, it'd be an A. I'm totally with you on the turkey. I you know, dark meat or or light, it doesn't really make much of a difference to me. It's just not, it's not my favorite. Uh, the mashed potatoes, I love the stuffing. I can't get enough of. So, you know, I can fill the whole plate with those things, have a little bit of turkey just to look respectable and be quite satisfied. But yeah, I, I'm going to go a B plus on that meal. I'm hoping, I mean, we're trying the deep fried turkey this year. Maybe that will change okay. things for the turkey for me, but yeah. Uh, We'll see. Hopefully it'll it may push it to an A to deep fried. Yeah. Yeah. Deep frying <laughs> can, can make a lot of wrongs right. All right. Second option. We have the Southern comfort. So my wife from East Texas 
did not grow up doing turkey, mashed potatoes and stuffing, but rather chicken with dressing and green bean casserole or some other things to go around that. But chicken dressing, you know, basically it's like a obviously chicken with cornbread all mixed together casserole style often how it's how it's served. What about that, Dave? You know, you're living in Texas, might be time to try some of those Southern options. I'm sure one of our neighbors will probably try that on. I mean, I like the chicken element of it. Uh, Cornbread dressing. Yeah, it's a little bit. I don't don't know. It's one of those things where I'll give it a shot, but let let me say like B, a hopeful B. Okay. Southern comfort. Yeah. I mean, we've had it. It's, it's good. It's not, I think my wife wishes our, our kids liked it more. It hasn't been one of those things where everyone just says, wow, got to have that, got to have that again. But, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I, I enjoy in general a lot of the Southern dishes that, that she makes. So I'm going to give that a B also and you know, kind of hope that the kids might over time begin to embrace more of their Southern roots on this. All right, our third option, what you've got to call the Madden special. If you grew up as we did, watching John Madden and Pat Summerall calling Thanksgiving football games with Dallas Cowboys. You remember at a certain point, I don't know that it was all those years, but at a certain point, the turducken started to appear. And he would go through the whole story of, of how he had the turducken, deep fried, of course, deep fried, on the Madden Cruiser bus. And, you know, you'd, you'd, all, all the boom, bam, Madden energy. And of course, the best player in the game, you know, gets gets a nice thick slice of that turducken. So deep fried turducken with anything. I, I you know I saw online, which of course you'd have to do this, um, a recipe for maple bacon, Brussels sprouts, and sweet potatoes all kind of mixed together. I don't know about the Brussels sprouts and the sweet potatoes, but the maple bacon's got to go with the deep fried turducken. I think you know it's got to be a heart attack on a plate here. So so that's the Madden special. I've not tried this myself. I can kind of imagine it. I certainly saw the excitement behind it as John Madden laid out that vision for us on TV those years ago. What do you think about that one, Dave? The only thing close to anything like that I've ever had is um, a fried chicken <clears throat> maple donut. Okay. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's an interesting first bite, you know, I'd probably like, I, I don't have a sweet tooth. So, uh, but you know, I could I could see how you might have two bites of that, but a whole donut like that, I just may be too much for me. Um, maybe the Brussels sprouts and sweet potatoes would lessen the the sweetness. But I'm gonna go see. That's just uh, one of those things that looks good in a recipe, but that may be just too overpowering for one's taste. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I'm. I, I, it's it's something that in my mind looks very attractive, but. I could imagine being three bites in and it being a little heavy, a little, little rich, maybe, maybe not all it's cracked up to be. I'm going to give it a B minus. Maybe one day we'll branch out. We'll try the turducken, get the big pot and deep fry in the backyard or something like that. We haven't talked about dessert. And of course, no Thanksgiving is complete without some good desserts. So quick grades on, on three different pies, Dave. Pumpkin, Apple, pecan. I'd say pump. I like I said, I don't have sweet tooth, so uh, pumpkin. Yeah, B minus. Apple, A minus. Pecan pie, C minus. So something like that, based upon how much uh, of a sugary taste each has. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna say pumpkin pie B plus. I enjoy pumpkin pie, but apple pie is an A plus. My mom makes the most incredible apple pie, and so there's really. You know, that, that if that's available, that's a big part of the meal. That's hopefully breakfast the next day. Push the pumpkin pie on everybody else. Had pecan pie once. Wasn't my thing. Uh, that's, that's one place where the Southern tastes haven't really worked on me. So I'm going to give that one a C. A little bit too sweet. And if I've got the option of pumpkin and apple, I'm just, I'm just never going to take pecan. So. All right. Well, we're down to our last segment. To Tocqueville's crystal ball, looks like, based upon the latest final AP calls and all the prognosticators, that of our 10 battleground states we projected two weeks ago, Dave, you got four right, I got six right. 
neither of us did especially well out of 10. I might have done better than that if we just stuck with whatever the, the polls were, plus two or something like that. Um, I also said Republicans would hold on to the Senate 51-49, which I, I'm feeling pretty good about that one. Might be 52-48. That would be great. But if it's 51-49, that would be good enough, I think, for most purposes. Sports picks last week did not go as well. My worst week to date, one and four. Got Indiana over Michigan. That was something. But the rest of them totally missed. Dave, you got a second one. You got Notre Dame over Clemson. Classic matchup overtime. But we both whiffed on New York Giants beating the Washington football team. Tampa Bay Buccaneers were a complete disaster against the Saints. And not surprisingly, our horse racing picks did not go well. Uh, Your horse was fourth and mine was ninth out of 10. So cumulative records now, I'm 22 and 18, you're 14 and 26. Let's move very quickly on. So our first pick, the Pac-12, I'm not not good at saying that, I'm I'm so used to Pac-10, but Pac-12 is back. Oregon State at Washington. The Huskies are a 13-point favorite. First game of the season for both teams. What do you think, Dave? I think the Huskies take this at home, yeah, by more than 13. I'm going with Washington. Okay. My mom will be happy, University of Washington grad. I say Washington wins, so make sure everyone hears that. But I think Oregon State's going to cover. I I think it's going to be a little bit closer than 13 points. I just think this college football – season you have no idea what you're getting week from week it's just up and down and first game for each team i expect probably some mistakes probably lower scoring than maybe anticipated and so 13 point spread just seems like it's too much even though washington's probably the better team here number two we have iowa at minnesota later on tonight iowa on the road three and a half point favorite Going with Minnesota. I think Minnesota will take this three and a half points. Great, but I think they'll win outright. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to take Minnesota also. All right, number three, our NFC East matchup of the week. Once again, the worst division in football. Philadelphia Eagles at the New York Giants. Eagles, likewise, a three and a half point road favorite. Can the Giants win two in a row? No. Okay. I think the Eagles take this. I'm going to take Philadelphia, give up the three and a half points. All right. I'm going, to, I'm going to take the Giants because I said I'm rooting for home teams in the NFC East, and I really don't want any team to get to 500, which Philadelphia would be 4-4-1 and one if they won this. So this isn't really based on analysis. This is just rooting interest. I want those Giants. Keep Philadelphia under 500, every other team in that division. Let's, let's keep it going. Let's see if we can have a division where no team wins more than five games. Need the Giants to come through here. And with three and a half points, I feel pretty good about that. Number four, Bills at the Cardinals. This could be a fun one. Two young quarterbacks could be lots and lots of points. Cardinals favored by two. Here I think the Bills have a little bit of a letdown. They had a great game against the Seahawks last week, but I I think the Cardinals take this. I think the Bills are ready to have a little bit of a collapse. Yeah, that's a good point. they, They did have that big, big win over Seattle. But I, I think the Bills are going to do it. I think, I think the Bills are going to have a, a second big win. And this is going to be – I wouldn't be surprised if this is like a 40 to 35 or just like last week with Seattle. Big scoring on both sides. Tons and tons of fantasy points. If you're uh, Kyler Murray or Josh Allen owner, you're going to be probably very, very happy with what happens on Sunday. All right, lastly, we have to go golf since it's the Masters. Strange to think about the Masters in November, but again, it's 2020, so what are you going to do? Now, we recognize that it's a little bit tough to pick a winner from a field of 92, even though we've got one round complete and a second one that's kind of in the middle. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give you three players that are near the top of the leaderboard, three big names, and I want you to tell me which of these three will finish highest. Okay, so maybe one of them wins, maybe they don't, but which of these three finishes highest? We've got Dustin Johnson, who's 9-under through the second round. Justin Thomas, who's also 9-under through the second round. And then Paul Casey, who just started his second round. He's three holes in, minus seven yesterday, still minus seven today. So 
we don't know what his final score will be after two rounds, but you know, fair shot at, at being at minus nine or perhaps even better. So of those three, Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Paul Casey, which one finishes best? I think Dustin Johnson takes it this year. I think he's been right there in the mix the last five years at the Masters. So uh, I, th- I think this is his year, and, and uh, he wins it. I just don't have enough confidence in him in majors. He's, he's amazing in so many other tournaments and just could overpower a course when he's on, and it seems like certainly he's, he's on this week. I just have a feeling it's just not going to quite happen. I'm going to take Justin Thomas. I think he might get get his first green jacket here. Maybe it's a narrow victory over Johnson and perhaps a few others, but I think, I think Justin Thomas might actually win outright, but I think he will finish, in any case, better than Johnson and Casey. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. As always, look forward to being back with you again soon. Please remember in the meantime to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. We look forward to talking to you next week.